Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. Tonight we'll be looking at part two of Exodus, and we'll finish off the book of Exodus as well. So I'm glad you're able to join us this evening, or whatever time you're watching this episode. We left off then just before the arrival at Mount Sinai. Now, as I'm delivering these conferences, we're still in Paschaltide, so we just celebrated our own Passover, the Passover of the New Testament, that is the great Paschal Feast, the Feast of Easter. And we know that 50 days after Easter, we have a feast that we call Pentecost. Well, that's because in the Old Testament, 50 days after their Passover, they had their own Pentecost. So 50 days after the deliverance from Egypt, after 50 days of wandering, being nursed by the Lord in the wilderness with the manna and the water from the rock, finally the Israelites reach Mount Sinai. So now we're at 50 days after their Passover. And just as we know, that's for us the foundation of the church and the promulgation of the new law of the gospel well, that's because that's the fulfillment of this prefiguration of the Old Testament. For now we will have the lawgiver Moses, he who was drawn from the waters and, call, and called to be the great deliverer of the people of God in the Old Testament, now will deliver the law to those in the Old Testament, to the Hebrew people. Which, as we look carefully now, we'll see that the law is initially quite succinct. It will be made up of something we all know very well, what we call the Ten Commandments. As those we'll see here, the word commandment is not used. It's just ten words. We'll consider that a little more closely. And furthermore, no talk yet about any special priesthood. Don't talk yet about any special priesthood. So now we have, in chapter 19, we have the arrival finally at Mount Sinai. So we'll read a bit. It says, On the third new moon, after the sons of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession. Or as we read in the Douay, which follows the, the Vulgate very closely, you shall be my peculiar possession. I shall be my peculiar possession. Going back to this idea of peculium in, in, in Latin, this idea of a special thing that you hold on to. Should be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words where you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he says that what is he saying? The promise is that you're going to be a kingdom, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. I think this is very important. I'll just go off on a short tangent. I mean, just remember, what are we looking for in the Old Testament here? We're looking for the Messiah. 
who I told you is going to be prophet, priest, and king. So we look for a Messiah, we're looking for prophet, priest, and king. But a Messiah means anointed one. And you may have noticed that up until now we haven't heard too much about anointing. We haven't heard much at all, have we? Not much at all. In fact, if you look back closely, we passed over it quickly a couple episodes ago. The only time where we really hear about anointing, well, it was way back in Genesis 28. Way back in Genesis 28, what happened there was Jacob. It was Jacob's ladder, right? We looked about that as a figure, a figure, right, of Christ. Christ himself will tell us, at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, that he is Jacob's ladder. He is the ladder upon which the angels of God ascend and descend. So Christ is the, the true tower, not the Tower of Babel, but the true tower that reaches up to heaven. So he is Jacob's ladder. He is that stairway to heaven. And Jacob will call that place Bethel and call it House of God. I know you think that sounds a lot like Bethlehem, right? Well, we'll see. Okay, we'll get there. We will get there, especially when someone, someone soon is going to be born. It's going to be from Bethlehem. We'll see that in, in a couple episodes. But for now, you know that he calls that back in Genesis, he calls it Bethel, house of God. And what does he do there? Remember, he had, he slept on a stone. Of course, we may wonder why, why he did that, why that was particularly, particularly comfortable to take a nap on, uh, on a stone, using a stone for your head. But I suppose if you position it just right, it actually could give some good support to the neck muscles. But at any rate, he, he's sleeping there on, on a stone. And what does he do after that? One thing we, a detail we passed over rather quickly, I'm glad my studio audience is chuckling at least a little bit now. It makes me feel a little more at home because I really don't like uh, speaking to a camera. I'd much rather have my flock back with me, but here we are. <clears throat> he anoints the stone. He anoints the stone. That's very interesting because we're going to see about stone, rock. Again and again, we're going to hear about the rock. We're going to hear about the stone. Perhaps some of you even think about that, about the stone, right? There's going to be something about a stone, the stone that the builders rejected, right? We'll hear about that very soon in the Psalms, and then our Lord himself will tell us that, that he is that stone, which the builders rejected, which will become the cornerstone. And so it's very remarkable that the first time we hear about this a stone is also the first time we hear about any kind of anointing. So Jacob anoints the stone. So... That's our first encounter with anointing. Now we're going to see anointing again very soon, but it's not going to be a stone. It's going to be actual people. It's going to be priests. But for the moment, we're being told that everyone's going to be a priest, so it seems. That's all we're really hearing about so far. We're hearing a lot about priests. Prophet, king, not so much yet. But priest, we certainly are starting to hear about that. We heard about it with Melchizedek. And now we're being told by the Lord, who has delivered his people... From Egypt, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. <clears throat> what we're going to see very soon is that this is God's plan. From the beginning, it was so. Our Lord will speak that way about marriage. And this is, in fact, true about the priesthood as well. So something is going to go very, very wrong now. And... God's original plan seemingly is going to be thrown completely off, but not forever, only temporarily. So now, Moses 
tells the people now that they need to prepare. So the Lord says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Take heed that you do not go up into the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready by the third day. Do not go near a woman. So God now will speak to Moses on the mountain, and he will deliver what? What we know as the Ten Commandments. As indeed they are. But it's interesting that here he just simply says, God spoke these words, saying, God spoke these words. Why is this important? In fact, if we look in the original text, it's, it's the word, same word twice. It's God worded these words. God worded these words. The word is davar in, in Hebrew. Why is this important? Because it seems that after the deliverance from Egypt, we have now a new creation. Very important to note, because just as we have a new creation, we're about to have a new original sin. So the new creation here is, the, is what? It's God speaking again. God speaks in the beginning. In the beginning, as we saw in Christ, right? God created the heavens and the earth. So that's why St. John says, in the beginning was the word. For it was by the word that all things are created. And now in this new creation, which is occurring at Mount Sinai, we have these words of the Lord, which will later be known as the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> God then gives to Moses the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> this also highlights for us the importance of the figure of Moses, that Moses is to be a great mediator between God and the people. For after the giving of the Ten Commandments, we hear in verse, so in 2018, when all the people perceived the thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet and of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will hear. Let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that the fear of him may be before your eyes, and that you may not sin. Now, more laws are going to be delivered now through Moses by the Lord, but not that many. What comes next, 23, if we look at these, we consider these laws closely, they are really just a development of the Ten Commandments. It's just almost a system of case law to go along with the Ten Commandments. How will we apply the Ten Commandments in many specific situations? So no big surprise there, really. No big surprise. No big surprise about what's going to come. So after detailing all of these, we get, though, to another important type, another important prefiguration in chapter 24, the blood of the covenant. So in chapter 24, <clears throat> he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu, 
and the 70 elders of Israel and worship afar off. Moses alone shall come near the Lord. The others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. The people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the sons of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And the Moses took half of the blood and put it in bases, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. These are the very words that our Lord himself will invoke at the Last Supper. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Now, what the Lord goes on to detail to Moses is how the tabernacle is to be constructed. Remember, a tabernacle is a tent, right? It's a tent. It's a dwelling place. It's a dwelling place, right? It's not yet the temple. There's no temple yet. We have to wait a long time for that. We have to wait for Solomon. We're nowhere near having a temple yet. But we are going to have a tabernacle that will be made. So, now starting in chapter 25, we'll have detailed how to construct the tabernacle and also the Ark of the Covenant. What will the Ark of the Covenant hold? It will hold the tablets of the law, the law they've just received, that is the Ten Commandments. And on top of it, the lid, as it were, of the Ark of the Covenant shall be called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, or seat of expiation. So this is where sins, as it were, are wiped away by sacrificial blood. So the top of the Ark of the Covenant will be called the mercy seat. And then, also now going in the tabernacle, is a table. And on this table will be placed loaves. So, we'll read the whole thing. On this, on the, and you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall it be in length, a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make around it a frame handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the frame. You shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and fragments of bowls with to pour libations, and 
you shall make them. And thus you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me always. The bread of the presence, the bread of the presence, so 12 cakes or 12 loaves of bread lined up in two rows on this golden table, which, as we shall hear later, are to be replaced, or every Sabbath they're to be replaced with fresh loaves. So this is called the bread of the presence, literally the bread of the face in Hebrew. So the bread of the face. Hebrew doesn't like to use any kind of abstract nouns. It's always concrete nouns. The bread of the face, meaning the bread, the bread of the presence. So certainly for all of our fathers in the faith, this bread of the presence, these 12 loaves of the bread of the presence, will signify the real presence of Christ, especially since we'll go on now to talk about the lampstand that is to exist there, the lampstand which is to be burning day and night. All this to signify the presence of the Lord. Of course, this is not yet the bread of the real presence by the incarnate word, but it is a prefiguration. So a prefiguration. This, which we have, all this given to us, delivered, this truth on the original feast of Pentecost. We're going to move on now because in order to consider the importance of these figures, what happens, we have to move on to what I already alerted to, alluded to as Israel's original sin. So we know the original sin of Adam and Eve. We know the original sin that occurs immediately after the flood with Noah and his son Cam. Well, now comes the original sin of Israel after their deliverance from Egypt. And perhaps many of you know, now we're in chapter 32, we're skipping ahead a bit, but chapter 32 of Exodus, we have what? Chapter 32, the golden calf. So Moses has been up there for a while now, hearing the description of how the tabernacle is going to be built. And in chapter 32, we read that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Now here, of course, we have one of the most humorous, humorous moments. About For me, it's the most humorous line in the whole Old Testament because what have we, all up till now, what have we heard? The Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The Lord called Moses and he said, I have heard my people. I've heard their cry. Oh, the Lord has heard the cry of his people. I've heard my people cry and I will deliver them. I will deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, after this, he said, 
still up in the mountain with Moses, and he says, go down, your people have sinned. So yes, the Lord says to Moses, go down, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What happens now? So Moses now pleads with the Lord. The Lord wants to destroy now the whole Hebrew people and start over. He says, I'll start over with Moses. And Moses pleads and says, no, that will not be to your glory, O Lord. If you do that, the Egyptians will say that you brought us out only to kill us. So don't do that. He pleads with the Lord and the Lord's wrath subsides and he does not destroy the people. However, Moses... He goes down the mountain with the two tables of the covenant in his hands, tables with it written on both sides. And when he goes down, he smashes them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it upon the water. And then he made the sons of Israel drink it. So, pretty fitting. If you know the passage well, you know now that Aaron makes up a very lame lie and says that the golden calf just popped out. They were just melting all this gold for some reason, and then a golden calf popped out. So the point now, though, is what, is the, what does Moses do? The Moses cries out, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, and he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword on his side and go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. And Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. <clears throat> what happens now then? The sin of the golden calf. And the tablets were smashed. Well, will they still get the Ten Commandments? They will, plus another good 600 commandments. So, what we see is that before, the law was simple, and it was direct, it was short. After the golden calf, things will change course. We'll still have the Ten Commandments as the expression of the natural law, but now we'll have this new law, this new law which will not be the same. Now we'll have what St. Paul will call the law of bondage, right? So the sons of Levi rose to the task and they executed judgment upon all those who had been given to idolatry, the most horrific of all crimes. And because they did this, they will now become the priestly tribe. 
So now we will have an ordained priesthood set aside. It will not simply be, as the Lord said before, a nation of priests. And it seems then that this priesthood of firstborn is going to be obscured. It's going to be obscured. Now we're going to have what's called the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. So the descendants of Aaron, the tribe of Levi, they're going to be the priests from now on. So it's not going to be a simple covenant anymore. Everything's going to have to go through this mediatorship of the Levitical priesthood, which will now be a very long and complex body of ceremonial laws, a heavy and oppressive law, as opposed to the very light and simple law, very direct, which we have before. No, thou, that will be set aside, at least for a time. And so this priesthood, which we might call might well call something like the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, but it seems that's the priesthood that was in place up until now, will be set aside. But as we know, it will manifest itself later on through the voice of someone else who prefigures Christ, his illustrious ancestor David, who will speak about, while speaking of him who is to be a king, will also call him a priest, but not a priest according to the order of Levi, not according to this law, but according to the order of Melchizedek. So all of our fathers in the faith will speak about this episode in this way, as the sort of original sin of Israel, to show that that's what the law is for. The law, as St. Paul will tell us, was laid down because of transgressions. It's laid down because of transgressions. That's how even the prophets can speak about the law in this way. And say Ezekiel will go so far as to say that the Lord laid down laws that were not good. He speaks through the mouth of the Lord himself. The Lord says, I gave you precepts that were not good and that did not bring salvation. And you say, what, what could he mean? How could the Lord speak that way about his own law? That's because this law was not meant to bring salvation. As St. Paul will tell us again and again in the New Testament, this law does not save. It only brings knowledge of sin. It brings remembrance of the transgression of Israel and prepares them. It prepares them. As we go on through the books of Moses, we'll see that's what this is preparing them for. That this is to get them ready for the restoration of the true law, which will make sense when our Lord comes. And that's why our Lord speaks very true. I know you've probably wondered that before. What does our Lord mean in the Sermon on the Mount? And he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's exactly what he's going to do. How is he going to fulfill them? By setting aside, absolutely. He is going to set aside this law of bondage. We're not going to be bound by that anymore, this Levitical priesthood. But he is going to restore the order of Melchizedek to its proper place. The priesthood of firstborn is going to be brought back by the greatest of all firstborns, the firstborn of the Virgin Mary, our Lord Jesus Christ, true priest according to to the order of Melchizedek. And he will restore and bring to fulfillment the law, setting aside the cruel law imposed after the sin of the golden calf. Thus then, we come to a conclusion of Exodus, and you may wonder, what will we do now with the book of Leviticus? You may be wondering what that's about, because I suppose that my audience here, it's going to be probably the least read of all the books. I imagine quite a huge portion of my audience who has never even read the book of Leviticus. And you may wonder, perhaps I'm just going to skip over it, because it sounds like it's going to be all about 
laws that don't apply to us because Christ is going to set them aside. Well, no, we are certainly going to consider Leviticus because, after all, what are we doing? We're looking for Christ on every page of the Old Testament. And in Leviticus, we are going to find him. We'll see you next time. God bless.